We're in uh, Matthew, and we're in chapter 4. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 23 to 25 specifically, but as we've been working our way through um, the early chapters of this gospel, we've been um, paying pretty close attention to what Matthew intends to for us to see in his writing. Um, he's writing with a purpose, just like when you write a letter, you write with a purpose. You expect the people who receive your letter to understand your meaning. Uh, you would be upset if they took the letter that you wrote and tried to twist your meaning or to change your meaning. And so when we read the Gospels, when we read any book of the Bible, we have to understand that the writers are writing with intent and that we are seeking what they intend to tell us. And it's quite that, just that simple. And uh, to any of his contemporary Jewish readers who are reading Matthew, or to anybody with a grasp of the Old Testament as we've dipped into in the last few weeks, um, Matthew is not subtle at all. He's saying, this is Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth uh, is the one of whom it was prophesied would come. He's saying, he is the final king in the line of David. He is a better prophet than Moses and a better priest than Aaron. He is the new Adam. He is a man who will not fail in temptation. He's also the son of God with whom the father is pleased. And he's ushering in a new kingdom. It's breaking into our world. It's right here at hand. And it's a kingdom that is open to all those who repent and turn away from the world and turn towards God. And we've, we've seen all of that and we've seen more than that uh, just in the last few weeks as Matthew's been writing. And so now after the baptism and after the temptation and after calling his first disciples, Jesus' ministry really now really starts and begins. And so this is in this few verses are the first time in the New Testament that Jesus, we actually see Jesus in action, so to speak. He's called his disciples to come, to follow him. He's going to make them fishers of men. And now Jesus is going to show them how to do that. And he's actually pretty good at it, as we're going to find out, as you can imagine. And so in this text, um, 23 to 25, Matthew is, again, revealing more information about the nature of this new king. He's, he's trying to show us more about who Jesus is. And, and, and more about this emerging kingdom and what's the nature of this kingdom that's emerging, uh, that, that he wants his people to know about. And so as these first disciples now begin following Jesus, what they are going to see is astonishing. This new king is like no other king and this God is like no other God and this kingdom is like no other. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom of healing and renewal. And the gospel of the kingdom is good news, and it's the good news that our king is full of compassion and that our brokenness is beaten. Let me just pray before we read God's word. Father God, we just come, we open up your word, and we seek to be encouraged, and we seek to know you better through reading it. And we know that your Holy Spirit is living and active in your word, that you've given your word, you've protected it. Through the centuries, you've brought it into the hands of us in so many different ways. But we have it here before us. What an incredible privilege to just read your word, your revelation of yourself to us, especially your revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, your son. And so as we just look at these few verses this morning, I pray that you would uh, open our hearts to see what it is we need to see, that, that you would encourage us each personally with the message that you have for us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 4, 23 to 25 reads this way. And he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so it begins by saying that Jesus went out through all of Galilee. Now, the northern Israel has the Sea of Galilee, which I'm sure you've all heard about. And Jesus walked on it, and the fishermen fished in it, and that's where he selected his first disciples from. And it's, and it's circled by fishing towns, and it's circled by some significant cities kind of in that region. That's why it's called the Decapolis. Uh, it's the ten-city region. And, and Matthew says that Jesus traveled from village to village through this Galilee region. So, so Jesus shows up not just in places like major cities. He doesn't arrive as the king, the son of God, and go straight to Jerusalem and plop himself down in the temple and say, here I am, worship me. Right? Jesus, he goes to Capernaum and he basically begins his ministry in these small towns around the Sea of Galilee, these fishing villages. And, um, and so he went to places like Gudurim, of all places. You know, he went to West Guilford. You know, he went to Torrey Hill and Galert and Minden, if you can imagine. I mean, you know, so you just got to imagine Jesus now in his ministry beginning, he's traveling around all these sort of hokey places up in the north of Galilee. And, uh, you know, even the Pharisees later on make note of it. And it's like, did anything good ever come out of Nazareth? I mean, these are it's just sort of backwards kind of place. So, so Jesus is just starting his ministry now. Uh, after the baptism, after the temptation, and his first disciples, as he travels with them, he begins preaching and healing. And I want to start with the, with the healing part, even though it talks about preaching first. Let's just look at Jesus' healing ministry. Matthew really emphasizes his healing ministry starting off here. It says, healing every disease and affliction among the people, so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And one of the first thing Matthew wants us to see about this kingdom of heaven and this gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom that is breaking into our world, is that it's a kingdom of healing. Matthew says that Jesus began to heal every kind of disease and affliction, and people were bringing him all the sick people they could find, and he healed every kind of oppression and affliction and pain, not just medical problems, but spiritual problems, and, and even oppression by demons and spiritual powers. Now, the interesting thing here is that critics of the Bible sometimes argue that these stories about demon possession, you know, and this spiritual oppression, they come from these unscientific, naive, superstitious ancient people who simply mistook, you know, common medical issues as spiritual attacks. But this simple people, obviously attributed to demons, uh, what was explainable by natural health problems. That's, that's their argument. But when you read this text, you see immediately in this very first account of Jesus' healing and casting out demons, that this writer, Matthew at least, and presumably the people coming, they could tell the difference between demon possession and spiritual, spiritual oppression and seizures and paralysis, because they're listed in the exact same list. It says there are people coming who are having seizures and who are paralytics, so epileptics and everything else, and those oppressed by demons, they knew the difference. So they're not unaware of the fact that there are medical reasons why things happen, and there are spiritual reasons why things are happening in our lives. The list, the list gives both. So Matthew is, 
is aware of the difference between the two. They're not baffled by what's going on. Some people had epilepsy and some were tormented by spirits and they understood that. And this is still true today. We know that there are physical illnesses that are not explicitly spiritual in their nature. Uh, the present world that we live in is not the world that God intended it. Sin has brought decay. This physical kingdom is degenerating. The, the law of entropy is at work. So our eyesight fails. And so like me, we wear prescription glasses or we break a leg. And so we go to the hospital and get a cast or our cells malfunction in our body and cancer is a result or our insulin levels are unstable. So we manage them or, you know, dopamine or serotonin levels in our brain are off. And so they affect our mental health. There are physical realities of this fallen world that's not as God intended it that affect us. But at the same time, there are spiritual realities at work that afflict us in the spiritual kingdom. The Apostle Paul will say later on in Ephesians, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Peter one of the disciples of Jesus says in his writing, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so the reality is that we live in both kingdoms. We live in a physical kingdom, and we live in a spiritual kingdom. And this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in is breaking in on both of those. The new kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, is that Jesus has arrived, the king has arrived, and he is breaking in on the spiritual and the physical. And we need a king who is compassionate about what is afflicting us. We need a king who can address both realities. And that king is King Jesus. And the other thing that's going on with this healing, so that's the first thing, is just, just acknowledging that Jesus is addressing compassionately both of these things that we struggle with, both the physical and the spiritual. And the people that were coming to him could see it immediately in the people that they brought. And they brought him all kinds of people afflicted with all kinds of reasons. Or all kinds of purposes that they were afflicted. Yeah, the Tylenol's kicking in now. <laughs> <laughs> the other reason that you have this emphasis in Matthew on the healing of Jesus is because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, I think it's pretty cool, actually. In the in the final book or in the final movie, if you watch the movies of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, there's this scene after the Battle of Gondor and the destruction of Sauron, where Gandalf is standing. Uh, and he's, he's watching over Faramir and the hobbits who are injured and they're, they're in the sort of hospital sort of area, triage area of Gondor. And, and Tolkien, who has basically throughout the narrative imbued Aragorn uh, as the true king and the rightful heir in the line of Isildur, and he's imbued him with all these Christ-like qualities throughout the whole story. And at this point, at the end of the battle and, and the injured are there, he has him arrive on the scene. And it's in the book, and you probably saw it in the movie as well, to, to basically lay hands on these sick people and revive them. And, and there's a nurse, at least in the book, that's what I remember best, there's a nurse standing by that says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. So Tolkien did that totally on purpose. Because Tolkien is trying to say, here's the true king. He was hidden, you didn't expect him, he's not the king you expected he would be, but he has come, and he's a healer. And, and Tolkien did that because he's pointing Aragorn towards Christ. He wrote that quality into Aragorn very deliberately as he's an archetype of Jesus. And so Matthew, not picking up on Tolkien, obviously that would be the wrong way around. 
But Matthew is doing the same thing here. The reality is, what Tolkien was picking up on, is the same thing that Matthew noticed as well in the true king. Right? In Isaiah 35, 5-6, it says, the prophet identifies the coming Messiah. And he says in Isaiah, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then in Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the coming one. And if he's really the Messiah, the one that they were to expect. And Jesus, instead of answering John the Baptist directly, he says to the people that asked the question, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And so Jesus says, you're asking if, I, if I'm the king? Do you not see all the healing? Do you not, do you not see the lepers who are healed and, and the lame walking and the blind who can see I am the true king. And so Matthew is getting across here by, by highlighting the healing ministry of, of Jesus, the prophetic reality that he's identifying himself very clearly to anybody who would read this or anybody who encountered him that he is indeed the Messiah. The other thing that we can notice here in this text is that Jesus doesn't reject anyone who comes to him for healing. Matthew says he healed all who came. Jesus doesn't say to all these crowds of people who are coming, who don't really know who he is other than he's a healer. He doesn't say, go and get yourself right with God, and then maybe I'll offer you my help. He doesn't quiz them on their loyalty. Jesus is gracious and merciful and compassionate. And, and if we get there in a few weeks, we'll see in Matthew 9, Matthew 9, Jesus looking over the crowds. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so if we're hurting, we should know that Jesus is compassionate and merciful to meet us where we are at first, so that then we can respond to the word of truth he desires to teach us. And in your, in your homework, in your life groups, there's actually more that we go into that, that, that relationship between healing the affliction and caring for people in their need, and then their ability to be able to receive the gospel and hear the good news that is there for them. God uses our hurts to bring us to himself in ways that the prosperity of the world never could. Our affliction and our sickness and this oppression that these people are under is what draws them to Jesus, and it's what draws us to God when we run into affliction, right? Far and wide they came to Jesus because that they were oppressed, because they were afflicted, because they were in pain. One thing to consider here, as we sometimes do, is how Matthew didn't write it or what he didn't say. What, what about the people not so desperate? Verse 24 doesn't say, His fame spread through all Syria, and so they brought him all the rich people and those afflicted with wealth and prosperity, and those who had a perfect life with no hurts or pain, and he congratulated them. That's not what it says, right? It doesn't say that at all. Why doesn't verse 24 talk about the wealthy people, the middle class, those that didn't have any problems, that life was easy for them? Why were, why were people not flocking to Jesus out of their abundance? Well, the reality is, is that people rarely turn to God when things are going well. When things are going great, the only God we want is the one we see in the mirror, because that's the one who's doing everything good in our life, right? We think everything is our benefit. If things are going well, it's because we caused it. When things are going bad, it's somebody else did it, or God did it. Right? But when things are going well, we only want 
deal with the person we see in the mirror. That's the one we like to worship. So we're always responsible for our well-being and success, and we're rarely responsible for our oppression, right? But the kingdom, so, so suffering, if you're ever wondering what suffering and affliction is for, one of the things is to alert us of our desperate condition, is to alert us like it's alerted all of these people that they need help and they need to go to one who can rescue them. And so the kingdom is both good news and bad news in this sense. It's, it's good news to those who grasp their need to be rescued by something outside of themselves. It's good news to those who recognize that they are not well and that they cannot heal themselves. It's bad news to those who desire to preserve their own individual autonomy and they refuse to acknowledge their weakness. It's bad news to people who want to preserve this fantasy that they're self-sufficient physically and therefore self-righteous spiritually. And so as Jesus is coming and healing and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, it's the ones who recognize their own weakness, who come to the end of themselves, who realize their own limitations, who are the ones, those are the ones who are close to the kingdom. Or put another way, those are the ones who the kingdom has drawn close to. And this doesn't mean only physical weakness or physical poverty. I don't, I don't want anybody to go away thinking that the kingdom is reserved only for the poor or the sick. I mean, as we're going to see later on in Matthew, Jesus met and ate with Pharisees, and he met and ate with tax collectors and the wealthy as well. The kingdom can come close to the rich and to the healthy and to the secure. But it is, Jesus warns clearly, and we see very plainly in the Gospels, it is very difficult. The healthy and the wealthy and the secure must be more purposeful and careful in their recognizing of the danger of their self-sufficiency. It can be like putting a camel through the eye of a needle, trying to convince the wealthy that they need God, Jesus says later on. And so we just have this reality that Jesus comes to those who are in need, and he turns none of them away. The fact that you have problems in your life today is not necessarily the bad thing that you think it is. There are people in the church every single Sunday who are here because there's something tough going on in their lives. And they feel compelled because of that toughness in their life, because of that hurt, because of that pain, because of whatever is oppressing them, they feel compelled to turn to God and seek him out. And that's how God wants you to respond. He wants you to lean into him. Whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, despair, whatever it is, time after time, these are the things that people have used as a path that leads to finding grace in Jesus Christ. And so God not only allows these things to happen in our life, but he will often ordain them so that you, can, you can't rely on yourself, so that you will have to lean into God. Suffering is, if you watch The Matrix, I don't know what it is with the movie references today, but I got a lot of them. I don't know if you watch The Matrix, but like suffering is like the red pill, okay? Suffering is the red pill that God uses to wake us up to the reality that lies behind the shadow of this life. And so if you're in the middle of suffering, if you're in the middle of some sort of, uh, of, of tough situation in your life, and you're wondering, why has God brought this in? Why, you know, I was comfortably numb. I was happy the way things were going. Why has God interrupted my life? Why has he brought this into my situation so that now I am woken up to this reality that's going on around me? He's saying, take the red pill. Don't take the blue pill and go back into the matrix. Take the red pill and come out into reality. It is the red pill that God uses. It draws us closer to the kingdom, even as the kingdom draws near to us. So don't, don't reject your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. Use it to draw closer to God. Notice the other thing Jesus didn't do. He didn't come 
judging all the sinners and multiplying their suffering, right? So here's the God of the universe. He comes down. He finds all these sinful people. He finds Israel that had wandered away from him. 400 years of silence. God has not spoken to his people. In Malachi, he wished that they had shut the doors of the temple and just stopped worshiping. He was so frustrated with them. But then Jesus comes down. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't sit in the temple. He doesn't say, come worship me. And he doesn't go around berating people and judging them and telling them that they need to get their act together either. Right? He doesn't come multiplying their suffering and saying that they should suffer more. He comes healing. He met suffering with compassion among people who didn't even recognize him. Isn't that the God you want? Isn't that the God that, that we're desperate for? God, a God that's drawing us out of our fantasy life and into his reality. A God whose reality and whose kingdom is healing, who it's restoration, it's redemption, it's renewing, it's restoring, all of those re-words. You can go through the Bible and find all of those words over and over and over again. He's rebuilding, he's restoring, he's renewing, he's redeeming. God is making all things new, and it's the breaking in of this kingdom that Matthew wants us to see is so closely tied with the healing that Jesus does. And so when we turn to God and come to God with these concerns, he genuinely loves to hear our hurts and our needs. Now that's not to say that the outcome we desire from every circumstance is the same outcome that he has appointed. And you'll touch on that in your life groups as well too. There are times when we will go to Jesus and we will go to God with suffering in our life and we will want it to end immediately. We want, we want the suffering to stop today and we want everything to be better tomorrow. I'll go to bed, I'll, I'll pray, and tomorrow I'll wake up and everything will be better. And that's not always the plan that God has for us. Even the Apostle Paul prayed three times for sickness he endured to end. And God said, you know what, Paul? That pain is actually accomplishing something in you. So just let it be for now. I will strengthen you to bear up under it, but it's not going to leave you. And so Jesus comes healing and God's kingdom comes to bring redemption, but its focus is not necessarily on the immediate and the physical. It's on the spiritual and the eternal. God has a plan for you and he is using everything to redeem you. God knows what will shape us and strengthen us. Sometimes the hardest thing we do as a parent is to make our, a choice that our, for our child's welfare that they can't understand or grasp. Any, any parents ever do that? Any parents ever make a choice on behalf of their children and their children hate them for it, right? You know, like we canceled Christmas once. No, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> but we do that as parents, right? We make hard choices for our children and sometimes they don't see and they don't understand why that choice was good for them. But God does that for us. He has a plan for us and he does things for us for our long-term flourishing. God is good. God is good. He's compassionate. And when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. They are both full of compassion. Matthew 12, 20, again, we'll get to it in future weeks, says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's just an incredible verse. You can tuck that one away and use it for the rest of your life. Whenever you are feeling despair, whenever you are feeling downtrodden, whenever you are feeling, you know, like everything is against you, just remember that a bruised reed God will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. God is for you, he's not against you. This is good news, and this is the good news of the kingdom. This is what Matthew wants people to see in Jesus, and, and what Jesus is introducing the kingdom of Israel to, and, and all of, it says all the way up to Syria, like it's spreading everywhere. They're coming to see him. This is not just good news for Jewish people, it's not just good news for Israel, it's good news for Romans, for Gentiles, for everybody. 
And that's what the healing of Jesus is. The other thing that we can get out of this text for sure is that this is also an example to us. Now, Matthew isn't mainly writing this to be an example, but we can certainly learn from it just as the disciples are. Remember, Jesus called his disciples and then he brought them along and this is what he started to do. So he said, here, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. You come follow me. And then he goes out and he starts preaching and teaching and healing all of these people. And so the disciples are watching. And so we can be watching as disciples to see what Jesus is doing and how he's doing it and why, how we should be following him. And so he leads them into a life of serving and ministering to the poorest and most afflicted of society. Jesus is working with lepers and beggars and cripples and the spiritually oppressed and the, and the despairing and the hopeless in the community. And Jesus says, these are the people I have come to serve. These are the people who you will serve if you follow me. They are your chief concern. And so I often wonder if Jesus was visiting our town today. If Jesus was literally in Halliburton today, would he be here in church? Or would he be somewhere else? Now that's not to say we shouldn't be in church. <laughs> he went to the synagogue and he taught. So maybe he would be in church, that's for sure. But through the rest of the week, would he be someplace else? Would he, would he be out finding his kind of people here in Halliburton? Would he be finding the sick and the crippled and the marginalized and the depressed and those who are hopeless and those who are in despair, those who are in broken marriages and who have you know, kids who are in jail and those who are addicted and those who have just lost their job and you know, whatever? You know, are those the people? And I think it's pretty clear from these three verses, those are the places Jesus would be. And then I ask, where am I through the week? Would I ever run into Jesus in town if we were here together? And this is the question that this really raises for us as a church. And you'll talk more about that in your life groups as well. So I hope you're in a life group because you're going to talk more about that as well. Right? Jesus was here to minister to those who were willing to confess that they were bruised and broken. Willing to be honest and transparent and authentic and say, I am done. I'm at the end of my rope. I am bankrupt. I have nothing to offer. What can you offer me? And Jesus says, eternal life. <laughs> I can offer you everything. That's who he wants to meet. He doesn't have a lot of time for the self-righteous or the self-sufficient. But Jesus didn't just come healing physical pain or even just to confront the rebellious spiritual powers that work in the world and cast out demons and those types of things. Jesus came preaching he came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Verse 23 says that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so this little introduction to Jesus' ministry with his healing sets the stage for the teaching that he's about to do. So Matthew's actually, because we're going to get, not right away, because we've got to go back and do Christmas stuff in December, but then after December, we're going to go into Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to get into the discourses of Jesus. And so we're going to get to the teaching. Matthew preserves for us the teaching and the preaching that Jesus does. And we're going to get there in the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached in the new year. We're going to get there. And so he comes teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so let's just take a sneak peek, though, because the gospel is not something anybody should wait to hear. Matthew calls this specifically the gospel of the kingdom, which is interesting because when we say the gospel, we think of the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection, but that hasn't happened yet, right? And so for Matthew, this is the life, this is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the good news of this new kingdom that is inbreaking into the world that's near at hand. 
And that this good news of this kingdom is that it's accompanied with healing of what is diseased and restoration of what is broken. And it casts out darkness and it casts out demonic forces. What Jesus does is the good news of the kingdom. The Gospel of Luke tells us exactly the sort of thing Jesus preached in these synagogues around Galilee. Luke 4, 16 to 19 says this. It says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, same region, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So this is Jesus now teaching in the synagogues, just like Matthew said. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set liber at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so the gospel of the kingdom is that the king has come. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming that I'm the king, I've come, the kingdom has come, it's near at hand, it's for you to enter into. So Jesus ushers in a kingdom of healing and reconciliation and restoration. Our king is full of compassion and our brokenness is beaten. That is the gospel of the kingdom. That is the good news of King Jesus. Jesus will not turn anyone away who seeks him. However broken you think you are this morning, whatever spiritual disease that you think that you may have, it's interesting. I've heard, since I've come here, so many different people who are unrelated to each other for various different reasons say to me that they're afraid to come to church because they're not sure whether God would strike them with a lightning bolt when they came through the door. It's funny, but more than one person says it. Like, I've heard it like six, seven, eight times. And so there's this general idea out there that God is, you know, like Zeus up on the mountain with a lightning bolt waiting to just hit the person that comes through the door of the church. But what Matthew tells us is that God, that Jesus is not a king and a God that sits up on a mountain with a lightning bolt. He is a king and a God who walks among his poorest people and his most hurting people and offers them his compassion. So whatever spiritual disease you think you have, whatever you think you have done that makes you unaccessible to Jesus, just know that he put sandals on every day and he walked from town to town to town to seek out those who were oppressed and those who were hurting. Whatever it is that you think is unforgivable, whatever brokenness you think that is unrepairable, Jesus will not break you, but he will restore you. He will not quench you, but he will ignite you. So the offer of this gospel is here for us today, to lay down our sword, to stop fighting, to stop living in the dream world, to stop depending on our self-sufficiency, to lay down our pride, to lay down our sin, bring our brokenness to Jesus and stop running. He wants to heal us. And what an amazing time to make that communion with Jesus, to meet with him, except on a communion Sunday like this. This is just an amazing time. So as we go into communion, I just want you to be thinking about this Jesus, who would walk those roads, who would meet those lepers, who would lay hands on those people that nobody else wanted to touch, because he wanted to bring compassion and healing and life. And that's what his kingdom is. That's what Matthew's showing us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are this king, full of compassion and mercy, overflowing. And that when Jesus came to make himself known, make you know, those who have seen me have seen the Father, he said. What they saw was a man of 
incredible mercy and incredible compassion, who is eager and ready to heal everyone, not to set up barriers and say, well, get yourself right, maybe I'll do something good for you. No, Jesus meets us right where we are, Lord, and that's the God that we need. We wouldn't seek you. We would have nothing in our own strength or our own power to pull ourselves up. We need you to come and meet us where we are, give us new life and new strength, and raise us from the dead. So, Father, we thank you that that's what you've done. You've done it through your son, Jesus, who, who came. He had to live this life. He lived this life perfectly, fulfilled the law. And then he went to the cross as the final sacrifice, once and for all, for all mankind. And then you raised him from the dead as a proof of your promise that his death was sufficient and that the life you give him, you will give all who follow him. And Father, that's what we remember at communion now. And so just as we enter into this time, Lord, I pray that we would take this truth and make it real in our own personal hearts. This is not just what you've done for the world. This is what you've done for me, personally. And I thank you for that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.